0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening
1: um, received a Ph.D. in philosophy from the Catholic University of America in 1997. Dr. John Cutterback writes and lectures on various topics, including virtue, household and family life, natural law, contemplation, and friendship. A third-order lay Dominican, he currently teaches in the philosophy department at Christendom College. His book *True Friendship*, where virtue becomes happiness, was republished in 2010. Dr. Cutterback also writes for his blog titled *Bacon from Acorns* where he provides a weekly Wednesday quote and reflection on some aspect of the good life. Dr. Cutterback, an avid gardener and hunter, is happy to make a household with his wife and children in the Shenandoah Valley. He's a frequent speaker for the ICC as well as one of our Magdala Apostolate professors. Professor Cutterback, the microphone is all yours.
2: Thank you Andy, I appreciate it. I'm excited to get started here and uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining what I'm going to do. Rather, I'm going to start doing it. But uh, I'll give a little bit of background. So we have Plato's Republic before us. So I had to make a decision of what best approach to take in, in two webinars. I have chosen to emphasize four books in that time. The entire book is divided into ten books, or we would call them chapters, but we call them books. And so I had uh, Andy ask you to read especially book one and book four for today. So that is what our emphasis is going to be. I'd say generally in our first part of our segment here, first segment we'll be looking at book one and uh, that might spill over a little bit. We'll, we'll, we'll see how they divide it up. But basically book one and book four here and then the ones that I'm uh, definitely going to ask you to be prepared to go on next week are Books six and seven. If you are able to, it would be nice to read book nine also, because in book nine comes his ultimate answer to the questions that we're going to be starting tonight. But we also definitely need to spend a little time, especially just, you know, in book six, the main thing I'm going to be interested in there is looking towards next next week already his treatment of what's called the divided line which will be at the end of book six, and then the beginning of book seven is his famous allegory of the cave. So we're gonna spend a a bit of time there, and we will also be looking in book nine at his ultimate arguments as to whether the just life is better than the unjust life, which issue will be raised tonight in book one. So I'm not gonna spend much time on kind of historical background, just to give you a, a, a little bit of a sense of this, We don't have anything that was written by Socrates. Our knowledge of Socrates uh, comes through uh, those who wrote about him. Plato was the major source of that. He writes a good number. In fact, most of what Plato wrote were dialogues, wherein the main teacher in the dialogue is Socrates. Plato's not the only one who wrote dialogues to have Socrates. I'm also right now in a course I'm teaching on family and household Uh, We've just gone over a a dialogue written by Xenophon, spelled with an X, X X-E-N-O-P-H-O-N, Xenophon, who is a fascinating figure. He has some very interesting dialogues wherein Socrates is the main figure. Also, the one we were looking at is called economicus, or it's translated as the estate manager. A a little bit of of, of a tricky word. I don't particularly recommend it for reading on your own because it, it, it can be easy to get a, a little bit lost in the labyrinth of just what is Socrates saying or what is Socrates not saying. That's part of what we're going to have to deal with here in the Republic. Republic is one of the most influential books in Western civilization. It was written around 380 BC, again, by Plato at a time where Socrates had already died. Um, but he is, he is giving Socrates uh, as the main teacher. Just so you know, an historical issue is raised of, can we know that what Plato says, Socrates says, is actually what Socrates said, or could it be Plato deciding to put these teachings in the mouth of Socrates? Very reasonable historical question. Just so you know, I'm not particularly interested in it. in in, in my experience, it doesn't really make a very big difference. If it turns out that the Socrates in Plato's dialogues is more the Socrates through Plato's goggles, well, then lo and behold, then we're looking at a Platonic Socrates and maybe not exactly what Socrates himself would have taught for philosophical purposes. I don't think that particularly changes anything at this point, whichever one of them it is that's speaking it, there are fundamental issues being raised, principles being asserted that are worth our consideration. So I, I, I begin this with a, a couple of basic aspects of my approach. I think we have something to learn from Socrates. And when I say from Socrates, pardon me, I mean the Socrates as speaking here in the dialogue. Sometimes I'll say Plato says or Socrates says, Kind of interchangeably, so please just allow me to move back and forth, because again, to me, it doesn't particularly matter. I think we could say the main reason that this work has been so influential is because it so well raises very basic issues about human life. And we can learn a lot from this dialogue about how to do philosophy. Indeed, I might say that that's that's really one of the main things that I'm going to suggest that we have an eye out for is what approach do we take? What steps do we take uh, if we want to grow in wisdom? If we have fallen in love, realizing that there is a deeper truth, that there are these great questions to which we don't yet sufficiently see the answer. How does one go about getting the answers. I suggest for your consideration that it is often more difficult than one might have realized. And it will take the cultivation of certain interior dispositions in order to succeed. And I think that that is one of the main things that is being conveyed here. And so it's fascinating to look at the different people that show up in The dialogue the different approaches that they take it's all masterfully done by Plato always with the purpose of What is Plato thinking that we would see here? What might we learn by this approach by the fact that this person comes in and says these things? And then we watch the master Socrates and how he responds to that person one thing that you will learn if you haven't yet had much experience of Socrates, is, as I kind of jokingly say with my students, you have to watch your pockets with Socrates. Just because Socrates says X doesn't necessarily mean that X is Socrates' final view of the matter. He is a teacher in constant conversation with the particular person with whom he's speaking. And you'll see that he is highly aware of where that person is and ultimately where he want to where he wants to bring that person. And you see him dealing differently with different people in different circumstances. And it will seem at times that he is taking a astoundingly circuitous route to, to where at times you will wonder. And I'm not necessarily gonna be able to just parachute in and say, oh, don't worry. If you look carefully, you'll understand that this is exactly where he's trying to get to, and so watch him go there. Sometimes we might be able to do that, but he really is something of a mysterious character. And in any case, he's going to raise some great issues and at least give us some pointers and how to begin to address them, so that's my introduction. So let's go ahead and uh, then jump in. Some of the names you're going to wonder exactly how to how to pronounce. I understand, and I might not have. I I, I don't know Greek, and so my own pronunciation might be a, a little flimsy. Um, but I'll just say it with confidence that you think I know what I'm doing, and we'll try to get to remember the particular characters it's there's not too many of them but as 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 we start to move in here it's good to try your best to remember who's who because the main the main speakers will remain the same as we go let's just open the with the famous opening of the politeia or the republic i went down to the piraeus yesterday with glaucon the son of Ariston, I wanted to say a prayer to the goddess. I was also curious to see how they would manage the festival, since they were holding it for the first time. I thought the procession of the local residents was a fine one, and that the one conducted by the Thracians was no less outstanding. After we had said our prayer and seen the procession, we started back towards Athens. Polemarchus saw us from a distance as we were setting off for home and told his slave to run and ask us to wait for him. Slave caught hold of my cloak from behind. Polemarchus wants you to wait, he said. I turned around and asked where Polemarchus was. He was coming up behind you, he said. Please wait for him. Glaucon replied, all right, we will. Just then Polemarchus caught up with us. Adiamontes, Glaucon's brother, was with him. So were Nasaratus, the son of Nicias, and some others, all of whom were apparently on their way from the procession. Polemarchus said, it looks to me, Socrates, as if you two are starting off for Athens. All right, we've just been introduced to the main people. Glaucon and Adamantus are brothers who will be with us throughout the book. They clearly, as you, you will see as we proceed, are kind of students of Socrates. They're very interested to learn from Socrates. So Glaucon and Adamantus, the two brothers. You have Polemarchus, to whose house we are going. At Polemarchus's house, we're going to be introduced to, to Polemarchus's father, Cephalus, with a C, all right? As regards our main characters, that's pretty much all of them. In a little while, another very important person in book one is going to jump into the discussion at a very important moment, and that is Thrasymachus. All right. So again, we have Socrates. Note he is he is the one who is narrating what's going on. He is the one that is going to speak the most. Now we have the two brothers, Adamantus and Glaucon, in place. We have Prolamarchus, the son of Cephalus, at whose house we are. And now the discussion is going to start up with Cephalus, the older man. And what is the topic of the discussion here that arises? Always a great, great question. What is old age like? Socrates turns to Cephalus and basically asks, "Is old age a difficult time?" The philosopher, remember, is always interested to talk about things that are kind of right there before our eyes. This is a very, this is a very simple and straightforward question. It's a question that applies, that has should have interest for everybody, and it's immediately, as we will see, going to Lead down into very deep veins that will open out before us. Watch it right off the bat. You might think of how it says in the book of Sirach, Beat a path to the wise man's door. In, in any case, Socrates is always interested to ask others questions. Now, Just who is to learn from whom in these discussions is always something to watch out for. Socrates always has the approach of asking someone, tell me what you think. And you, it is perhaps left to your discernment to see what is going on there. Is Socrates primarily trying to learn something? Does Socrates himself think that he has something to teach this person? always something to keep an eye open for. Well, let's just kind of follow along here. So is old age a difficult time? Well, we get the common response. Well, it's difficult. And certainly anyone I'd say in the audience who is already there or nearly approaching there can immediately relate to this. There's a loss of a lot of the pleasures that we had of youth, this is obvious in, in in a number of different ways. That I mean, even, even in times if it's just the pleasure of going for a walk without having pain. Right? I mean, there's it's pretty dramatic just how difficult in certain rather fundamental and obvious ways old age can be. So it's it's interesting that the a common answer is given here, and the common answer might well have some important aspects to it, maybe it's not gonna have the whole picture. But the other aspect of the common answer, other than the loss of pleasure, is problems with relatives. You know, it's funny, I remember when I was younger reading in public, I remember very distinctly thinking, problems with relatives? I, I, I wonder exactly what that's, what that's referring to. Does, does this particularly start to happen as you get older? And um, well, I don't want to reveal any uh, cl- close secrets here, but um, I, I, it, it's it's interesting. I, I, Aristotle says the more experience you have in life, the more capable you'll be of considering the basic questions. Just because your experience keeps broadening, the way that you're able to consider things, and so. In any case, uh, perhaps some can relate to this aspect of life can become very hard as you get older on the simple level of the loss of bodily pleasures and likewise the attendant pains and so problems with relatives. All right, that's put out there, but then another aspect is introduced here. Kefalus himself presents another possible way of looking at that situation. Would I be out of line here if and and, and if I am not I don't want to put anyone on the spot. But but let, let me just try this and then we'll see how it goes. Worst thing that happens is it's a complete bomb. All right. So does any does anyone here among you few who have the misfortune of being before my very highs at this moment. You're in the front row, as it were. Are you in the front row there? H- how does Cephalus himself address this? Does Cephalus himself just say, yep, the common answer, that's the way to go. Loss of pleasures, problems re- with relatives, that's pretty much old age. Old age is a problem. Or, Does he have something else to suggest? Um, Yes, please. Young lady Uh, in the front row.
0: So, Kefalis also says that the way people
2: live bring misery upon them when they're old. And then he also says that wealth does help old age, but it is not necessary for happiness. Good. Good. Out of the mouth of babes, wisdom cometh. Good. Very good answer. Note, I am on, now, just so you know, I, I don't know whether you all out there have the same exact book that I do. The good news is, in any work of Plato, you can refer to the numbers that are in the margin. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and first say the page that's in, that's in my book. I'm gonna hold this up for a second here. Pull Andy Ickman. This is my book, and I'm on page four in it, but more to the point is the marginal number which is 329 d. Now if you're looking at mine you'll you'll see that if you if you like on my page 4 you'll see that the number 330 is further down and then the letters E and D are above that. Well obviously that means we're, those are under the section 329 So I'm at 329 D is in David and so I'm right above that we have in these matters and in those concerning relatives the real cause isn't old age, Socrates, but the way people live. Now that's what my young answer referred to. But now the way people live could be could not exactly sure what that, what that means. So we, we keep reading there. If they are moderate and contented, old age too is only moderately onerous. If they aren't, both old age and youth are hard to bear. So, right off the bat, we have a very interesting connection being asserted. What does the term moderate particularly refer to? Well, as as we will see soon enough, especially when we get to book four, moderation is the translation that's being used for the word that we also translate as temperance, which is going to name one of the cardinal virtues, what will come later to be called the cardinal virtues. So right off the bat, Kevalis is signaling a connection here between moral character and happiness. How are we to judge old age? Well, not that it's irrelevant to talk about the problems with relatives or the bodily pains and loss of bodily pleasures, but the point is raised perhaps the more essential determinant of happiness of how the time is going to be experienced is going to be in the matter of moral character. What type of character do we have? And so we might say right off the bat, this is going to set the tone for what is coming. There seems to be a necessary connection between how one lives, and of course, how one lives is very, is very broad, but how one lives in the sense of moral character, and then how happy one would be or not. This is going to be the basis for now the next major question that's going to rise, namely, very quickly, the question is going to come up of, about justice. And I'm over on page five. Again, I'm moving somewhat quickly. I mean, we're obviously going to have to be picking and picking and choosing, and just kind of touching down at at, at key points and do, trying our best to get the flow. But Kephalus is wrapping up in the discussion. Um, as again, a, a young questioner pointed out, a couple of suggestions are made as regards to wealth. Wealth is not the major determinant of one's happiness. It can have an effect upon it, but it's certainly not is not to be seen as the major determinant, so I'm right above 331b. It's in this connection that wealth is most valuable, I'd say, not for every man, but for a decent and orderly one. Wealth can do a lot to save us from having to cheat or deceive someone against our will, and from having to depart for that other place in fear because we owe sacrifice to a god or money to a person. There's many other uses, but benefit for benefit, I'd say this is how it's most useful to a man of any understanding. Now we're about to take a very key turn, a, a natural progression perhaps, a fine sentiment Cephalus, but speaking of this very thing itself, namely justice. And that's where the, fir- the word is first said. Interesting the word wasn't directly said prior to that. Socrates is drawing that out of this discussion. Speaking of this very thing itself, namely justice, are we to say unconditionally that is speaking the truth and paying whatever debts one has incurred. Now we're off and running. Ladies and gentlemen, what comes now in this next section of book one is a classic situation, seeing Socrates doing his thing, where he is having a conversation with someone, with several people, trying to get to a definition. This is a prime example of what's called the Socratic method. Where Socrates tries to keep examining what someone has said, to see whether what the person has said is a sufficient answer to the question is given. So the question that is set the course for our whole work, Was just given right there. It's within several pages of the opening of the book. It flows naturally out of the discussion of how is old age, which we now are just going to leave behind. There were some other interesting things that we could look at there. We have to leave it as it is. That's the prompt, the setup. And now we have the key issue. And right off the bat, you can see that the main issues about justice that are going to be addressed here in book one and throughout the rest of the book are what is it and then fundamentally does it make a man happy or in other words is the just life a better happier life than the unjust life now ladies and gentlemen you might be thinking to yourself well golly i mean this is this is an awfully basic point doesn't one have to have already seen this uh, i mean are, are we really going to be at that basic a level well answer yes we are going to be at, 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 at that basic level because this, this is a foundational insight about human nature that I suggest someone earlier had asked a question, what's the, what uh, particular role does philosophy have? Well, that's something that we'll look at, at more as we go. But I'm, I'm going to suggest that you see here the fundamental issues about life and its meaning are being brought up here and are being thought about in a very intelligent way. And so for us to be willing to go back, not just as, oh, this is just kind of uh, interesting to see if I get any arguments out of this that might help me go out there and uh, convince someone else out there who doesn't understand these things. That might be something that one that one could do with this. I'm, I'm going to invite you to be willing to go on the philosophical journey with Socrates and, and realize that if one doesn't fe- begin already with a viewpoint of faith, which simply takes as given that there is a way that's called the just way, and that way is just, pardon me, and that way is better, which is fine. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong. I mean, divine revelation... Pardon me, does make that clear, but it, it, it is an excellent exercise for us to look at what can be known by the light of natural reason. And it's an excellent exercise, I'd say, at least for two reasons. One, ultimately, we are going to come to understand this, better, this matter better than we would have had we simply left it as, okay, I take this on faith. We're going to come to a deeper and fuller consideration of it, one. And two, we're going to be in a better position to be able to help other people understand it, to be able to help them recognize what the light of natural reason is actually making available to them if they have eyes to see. All right, so I go along then, and it would be too much for us to try to go through Each definition as it's given and then see what the response of it is. Note that that first definition is lofted out there and is is a very worthy one. It's repeated then but immediately seen to have an issue. It's repeated then at 331D well actually let's 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 do this. Let me let me pick up from right where we were. Um, again in three thirty one C, Charlie, my book, bottom page five. Fine sentiment, Keplist, but speaking of this very thing itself, namely justice, are we to say unconditionally that it is speaking the truth and paying whatever debts one has incurred? Or is doing these things sometimes just and sometimes unjust? I mean, this sort of thing, for example, everyone would surely agree that if a sane man lends weapons to a friend and then asks for them back when he is out of his mind, the friend shouldn't return them and wouldn't be acting justly if he did, nor should anyone be willing to tell the whole truth to someone who is out of his mind. That's true. Then the definition of justice isn't speaking the truth and repaying what one has borrowed. Already, you you have to get in the groove of seeing what just happened right there was a purported definition was set forward. Hey, what do we mean by justice anyway? Pretty clearly, they were taking a standard given definition, they start to test it, and they realize, but wait a second, if you just say that it's repaying what one has borrowed, then right off the bat, an objection has been raised, but wait, sometimes it's not the right thing to repay what one has borrowed. So simply to say well, to repay to what one has borrowed is not going to work as a definition. So then we have to start to look more closely and try to rephrase the definition to come up with a better one. The next notion then, and, and, and I, I, I'm going to keep chugging here. Don't hesitate to jump in if you, if, if you, have, if you have a question because we're coming to some some waters that are about to get kind of deep and start to stir a bit so then we bring in a definition of a man named simonides to give to each what is owed right comes in here just a few lines down at 331 e 331 edward to give to each what is owed which then is further qualified as meaning to do goods to one's friends but harm to one's enemies. Or that's the first way they try to explain what it would mean to give to each what is owed to him. That then is rejected as being problematic in terms of the giving harm to one's enemies. Should you really harm one's enemies? This is rooted in the problem of how does one discern what you actually would owe to someone or not? This raises the great question, the great issue of the notion of craft and I am in my book on page seven and in about the middle of my page and it is 332 D as in 332 Daniel you say good now what does the craft we call justice give and to whom or what does it give it now the thing you have to watch, and you learn as we go along with Socrates, is while he's, he's asking a lot of questions, and so it will often seem as though he himself is not so much giving answers, you have to watch when he does introduce something new into the argument that clearly he himself wanted to inject into the consideration. And this is clearly one of those moments. This happens to be one of the words that I know the Greek word for Craft is a techne, T-E-C-H-N-E, which is basically the word in Latin, A-R-S, ars which is translated in, in, in then into English, ultimately also as an art. Here it's being called a craft. And it's a fascinating beginning approach to trying to adju- address the nature of justice. So this is the question that's come up before us. What is justice? I'm gonna to try to lay hold on what this is try to come up with some type of definition which is going to prove to be very elusive we to start to use different notions in order to try to address it the first key notion here that socrates is going to bring in that's going to help us be able to think about that a little bit more is the notion of a technê, of a craft socrates loves to refer he will refer to them constantly very basic crafts that are common to everybody's experience. And in this, it's fascinating. He has a similarity, I dare say, as a teacher to our Lord, who liked also to refer to these very basic crafts, such as fishing and shepherding and so forth. I'm going to read out to you, ladies and gentlemen, this next little segment. And my question to you is going to be this. What is the point of this little riff here? You ready? Uh, I'll I'll just read both parts rather than trying to have someone read the other part, which would be hard to do. Good. Now, what does the craft we call justice give? And to whom or what does it give it? If we were to follow the previous answer, Socrates, it gives benefits to friends and does harm to enemies. Simonides means, then, that to treat friends well and enemies badly is justice i believe so and who is most capable of treating friends well and the one questioning here is is, is socrates so you just have to try to listen i'll try to move over when we when we change to the to the other person and who is most capable of treating friends well and enemies badly in matters of disease and health a doctor and who can do so best in a storm at sea a ship's captain what about the just person In what actions and what work is he most capable of benefiting friends and harming enemies? In wars and alliances, I suppose. All right. Now, when people aren't sick, Parlamarchus, a doctor is useless to them? True. And so is a ship's captain to those who aren't sailing? Yes. And so, and to people who aren't at war, a just man is useless? No, I don't think that at all. Justice is also useful in peacetime, then? It is. And someone farming, isn't it? Yes. Forgetting produce? Yes. And shoemaking as well? Yes. Forgetting shoes, I think you'd say? Certainly. Well, then what is justice useful for getting and using in peacetime? Contracts, Socrates. And by contracts, you mean partnerships or what? I mean partnerships. Is someone a good and useful partner in a game of checkers because he's just or because he's a checkers player? Because he's a checkers player. And in laying bricks and stones, is a just person a better and more useful partner than a builder? Not at all. And what kind of partnership then is a just person a better partner than a builder or a liar player in the way that a liar player is better than a just person at hitting the right notes? I'm going to pause. We could keep going a couple more paragraphs there, but I think you're starting to see the point. Or if you're not, let's stop and help you see the point. What is Socrates trying to get at? So I'm going to ask someone to answer this question for me right here in the, in the front row. What, what does Socrates, what's he trying to get at? And what is it proving very difficult to get at right now by his moving through these different crafts and continually coming back to ask about justice. Can anyone help me on that? What is being illustrated in this difficult conversation right now going through the different crafts? Any thoughts? Yes, please. Young lady in the front row. I think Socrates is saying that justice is different from
0: the other crafts because you shouldn't harm people. Like, you shouldn't harm your enemies, and that's not called justice, but you could
2: not be a doctor and harm someone by trying to doctor them. So it's, it's different from the other things. Okay. I like where you're going. I like where you're going. But there's, there's no doubt that ultimately justice is going to be somewhat different from the other crafts, but at the same time, he's, he's going to, by calling it a craft, we want to see that it's ultimately similar to other crafts. And as regards any craft... What is the first question you need to answer if you're going to understand what that craft is? Someone help me on that. What's the first thing you'd need to know about a craft if you're going to understand basically what it is?
1: Uh, There's a couple of people writing in. Martha is saying maybe you want to know the standards. And Ray is saying um, maybe the question is what are the ends of the craft?
2: Okay. All right. I see some good answers coming in there, even going a little bit deeper yet than I I want you to get. First of all, just what is the craft about in the sense of what is its subject matter that it has to do with? So I I see a number of good, good comments were coming in there, how to do a craft well. As regards any craft, you'd have to be able to say, what area does it govern? What is it going to be a know-how of overseeing, right? So, you know, farming is going to oversee the realm of, of the raising of plants, and medicine is going to oversee the realm of becoming healthy. What would justice be actually overseeing? Part of the thing that he's, he, he's saying here is it's very difficult To narrow down what justice would be the craft of doing, because it seems to be something that's going to show up in all areas. Don't you want to have the craft of justice when you're involved in farming? And don't you want to have it when you're doing shoemaking as well? And so how are we ever going to be able to narrow in on exactly what justice is, if it's something that would seem to be involved in all of these, right? So Right off the bat, ladies and gentlemen, I just need you to see, first of all, this is a very difficult question. There is no easy answer to it. When Aristotle comes to try to address this, he's really going to struggle in saying, what is the area that justice has to do with? And indeed, Aristotle ends up saying, we don't have one word in our language that would capture it because it is so kind of profound and complex. So Socrates wants us to think in terms of a craft. The Just man is going to have some type of objective know-how of how to treat some area, of how to act well, how to take care of some area. Any craft is always a know-how of how to take care of some area. But what area is justice going to be a craft of taking care of? He's gonna end up proceeding in helping us see that, although no immediate answer is forthcoming. And and I present for consideration right off the bat here, ladies and gentlemen, the first thing that you need to start to get a sense of is, oh my gosh, there is no immediate evident answer to that. Indeed, how would I say in words what area? It does have to do with it's obviously going to have to be something that is extremely broadly stated all right pause that is how the argument is going when all of a sudden we have a new situation we have Thrasymachus come jumping in and I'm on my page on book 12 and this is 336 alpha going right into beta all right so We're going to have an interruption. We were in the middle of just a classic kind of Socratic going along. All right, we're trying to get a sense of what it is. We've introduced a new term, craft. All right, but then if it's a craft, you don't know what area it is, but it's very difficult. I don't see how we're going to determine that. And then here we go. While we were speaking, I'm right a 336b. While we were speaking, Thrasymachus had tried many times to take over the discussion, but was restrained by those sitting near him who wanted to hear our arguments to the end. When we paused after what I'd just said, however, he couldn't keep quiet any longer. He coiled himself up like a wild beast about the spring, and he hurled himself at us as if to tear us to pieces. Prolemachus and I were frightened and flustered as he roared into our midst. What nonsense have you been talking, Socrates? Why do you act like idiots by giving way to one another? If you truly want to know what justice is, don't just ask questions and then refute the answers simply to satisfy your competitiveness or love of honor. You know very well that it's easier to ask questions than answer them. Give an answer yourself and tell us what you say to justice. And don't tell me it's the right or the beneficial or the profitable or the gainful or the advantageous, but tell me clearly and exactly what you mean, for I won't accept such nonsense from you. All right. Well... This is a key moment, ladies and gentlemen. Thrasymachus is, is, is one of the most important characters here, even though he isn't going to end up saying a whole lot. There is a ton in that paragraph right there. You see a lot about Thrasymachus' approach to trying to answer a question. So the more experience you have had of Socrates, the more, I think, actually, you can appreciate what Thrasymachus is doing here. The more that you've read the dialogues, where you've, and you've already seen it just from reading those last several pages that we just moved through all, all too quickly, you can see that Socrates is just kind of going back and forth, back and forth. Oh, well, then well, if there's that? Then what about this? But then this, but then what about that? And so it can start to drive you crazy. You're wondering why he's doing it. You're wondering where he's going. And so I think you, the reader, at this moment, when Thrasymachus jumps in and just says, will you stop that? You're kind of thinking, "Yeah." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Would you just like stop asking all these questions? I mean, come on. I mean, isn't this Socrates where you give us the answer? Well, I I just want to say something to you all as a philosophy professor. I dare say I've had a few Thrasymachus in my classroom before. Probably most of all, if when I've succeeded in maybe just being a little teeny little bit like Socrates, trying to ask questions, draw things out a little bit. You know, someone just says, so what are we supposed to put in our notes? That's always a interesting moment in a philosophical discussion. And I feel a little bit like you, you're, Plato, in writing this, understood the frustration of somebody listening to Socrates. But ladies and gentlemen, I need you to look for a couple minutes with me at this paragraph, because this paragraph is the paradigm of exactly what Socrates does not want you to do. So let's look at it again.
0: Uh, professor, would you say that
2: he's um, saying that it depends? So all these questions, it depends. Oh, uh, is, is you saying, is Socrates saying that? Well, in,
0: with his questioning, it comes to, right. it depends on the situation, it depends but, on what it is. So it's not a straightforward answer but he asks question
2: because it depends great question is socrates answer to everything it depends and i would say no however well asked and there's a reason that you ask that because his his answer will often be it depends and, and there's a very important difference between often being it depends and it al- always being it depends there are certain things where when you ask the right question, you are going to get a very straight answer from Socrates, and it's not going to be an it depends at all. Nonetheless, very often, we have to qualify things. And ladies and gentlemen, this is where, this is where you, you, you're you going to start to feel a little bit of pain here. And this is where at times, I'm, I'm really going to come at you a little bit. If you happen to be Christians, if you happen to be in the Catholic tradition, where you hold that... We can go to the church for certain clear answers. We can go for the dogma. You can go for the doctrine. You can, reasonably enough, have an approach of, hey, regarding the basic questions of life, can you please just give me a clear answer? Because there's so much confusion out there, and I just need some clarity. Ladies and gentlemen, I am certainly appreciative of that. Obviously, much more importantly, the church is very appreciative of that. However, at the same time, we must introduce a bit of nuance and realize even as regards very fundamental things, there is often more nuance to the situation than we might have noted or that an appropriate distinction has to be made, or that to come to see the nature of the thing is going to require us to follow a certain path before we're able to understand what that answer even is, or, or put otherwise, it's going to take a while before we even understand what the question is. So as properly to be able to understand what the answer is. So Hayden, if I'm, if I'm not mispronouncing your, your name there, there is a lot of it's depends and in life, Hey, I say this from a parent's perspective. I say it depends an awful lot to my children, right? There is a lot of that in life, but not completely. Look, let's read it again. What is Thrasymachus rejecting here? What is he rejecting as, as he set, makes these statements? Let's note a couple things. Again, what nonsense have you two been talking, Socrates? Why do you act like idiots by giving way to one another? Okay, so point one. Prasimachus rejects giving way to one another in the discussion. Note how in the discussion up to this point, th- they are being extremely deferent to one another. Oh, okay. Hmm. Okay. Oh, you, 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 you want to take that line or that that's going to be your question. All right. Hmm. All right. I'll think along with you along that way right and and particularly those those who are answering Socrates are being very deference to him especially as the teacher and Thrasymachus jumps in and he just says quit it I I, I'm I'm sick of this you being deferring to one another why don't we just have someone who's going to assert his own view right off the bat I say Plato the author here wants you to go "Mm -mm -mm. that that's a problem that's overconfidence. That's someone who's just saying, hey, let's just start asserting answers. That's someone who doesn't understand that the most important questions. We have to come out with humility and have to be willing to recognize that it's going to take quite a bit of work in discussion with other people from whom we're going to have to be willing to learn and give way to them, even at times when it hurts. That's my first suggestion. Second, he says, if you truly want to know what justice is, don't just ask questions and then refute the answers simply to satisfy your competitiveness or love of honor. You know very well that it's easier to ask questions than answer them. So he's rejecting the priority of coming up with the right question first. Just, again, give an answer. What is absolutely central to Socrates, to Plato's view of doing philosophy? It takes a while to clarify what the right question is. They do not believe that there's no such thing at the end of the day as a bad question, or in any qu- case, they certainly believe that you need to find the right question to ask in the right order. And indeed, in their view, that is one of the main things that a teacher must do. He must learn what the right question is and try to guide his students to ask the questions, the right questions, in the right order. Has no has no patience for that. You know very well it's easier to ask questions than to answer them. Give an answer yourself and tell us what you say to justice. And don't tell me it's the right or the beneficial or the profitable or the gainful or the advantageous. But tell me clearly and exactly what you mean, for I won't accept such nonsense from you. Ladies and gentlemen, finally, what is Thrasymachus absolutely rejecting? He is rejecting the work that it takes in order to come up with the right definitions You through a very, careful use of universal terms, the meaning of which needs to be tied down. And so right off the bat, he is completely rejecting Socrates' approach, which recognizes that you have to begin by saying, all right, we have to take certain of these words here, set forth clearly what their meaning is, and then in terms of these, we're going to proceed. Complete rejection of that. All right, here's where we're going. Basically... Frasimachus, first of all, having already, if we have eyes to see, taught us something by providing a counterpoint to Socrates' whole approach to a question, is now going to add to our consideration of the specific question. This is very common in a carefully crafted dialogue that you are always at one and the same time learning more universal points about how to philosophize in general and how to proceed, as well as then learning something about the specific issue at hand. And so Thrasymachus famously then comes to give his own definition when Socrates just says, Thrasymachus, by all means, then you tell us what you're thinking. Thrasymachus is very happy to say what he thinks, and he says that justice is nothing other than the advantage of the stronger. Justice is nothing other than the advantage of the stronger. Now, what does that mean? In context, what becomes clear, what that means is that when the weaker person does what is traditionally called to be just, this ends up being to his disadvantage and ends up being to the advantage of the more powerful. And so justice is always something then that ends up losing, pardon me, leading to the weaker person losing. It is a way that the more powerful will lord it over the weaker. And so what we're going to have here, ladies and gentlemen, as we proceed, we're going to see the other key assertion of Thrasymachus comes at 344a and moving a few pages ahead. 344a, very, very important assertion of Thrasymachus. And here, our last point before our break is going to be we're going to get, ladies and gentlemen, one of the great dichotomies of the ancient world is going to come out right here. And it's not just the dichotomies of the ancient world, it's a fundamental dichotomy between two different ways to see reality. This is Thrasymachus speaking right at 344. Therefore, I repeat what I said before a person of great power. Outdoes everyone else, a person of great power, outdoes everyone else. What Thrasymachus is fundamentally asserting is that the fundamental reality in human life is who has the power. He sees justice as sim- the notion of justice ultimately just feeds into that. You have weak people following the rules of justice, being concerned about being honest and giving what is due and not lying. And meanwhile, the powerful do what is to their advantage. And the weaker end up simply serving them. And so power overcomes everything. And so what we have here then, I'd say, through Thrasymachus, we have raised a question that ends up being really the dominant question of modernity also. It's just that modernity tends to answer it in the opposite way that Socrates is going to. But as they say, there's really never anything new under the sun that some Greek hasn't already brought forward. And here's Thrasymachus who is bringing forward the dominant force in reality is the power. The power of the stronger will always win That will be where the real flourishing will be is through the exercise of power. What you really want in life, ultimately, if at all possible, is to be able to outdo, to overpower others. And therein will be your greatest fulfillment. And as a counterpoint to that, what has Socrates raised? Look at this amazing line. 342, Edward. 342. Everett, in my book, it's page 19. So then Thrasymachus, no one in any position of rule, insofar as he is a ruler, seeks or orders what is advantageous to himself, but what is advantageous to his subjects, the ones of whom he is himself the craftsman. It is to his subjects and was advantageous and proper to them that he looks in everything he says and does. He says and does for them, ladies and gentlemen. What you have placed before you, I think brilliantly, is two fundamentally different views of the fundamental reality called authority. You have Thrasymachus's view that authority will always and everywhere be. At root, an exercise of power, an exercise of someone who is looking to outdo others, someone who is looking ultimately to his own good. This is what authority always comes to. Someone overpowering others, looking to his own good. Prasimachus. Socrates. What we just read there. Using again the notion of craft, and now it becomes clear what he had in mind from the start when he introduced the notion of craft. He says, one who has a craft is always someone who is taking care taking care of that over which he has some authority says someone in authority but he said someone who's ruling in as much as he's ruling in other words that was code in Socrates terms for someone who is a true ruler will always and everywhere by definition of authority be looking to the good of those over whom he is ruling the entire justification of his authority of his having some position of power for there is some power and authority will be that he must look to the good and direct to the good those who are under him I present for your consideration ladies and gentlemen that therein you have the fundamental dichotomy a dichotomy that is played out in all areas of life perhaps nowhere more significantly than in the home where the fundamental issue might be cast as is the authority that is exercised in the home experienced as thracimican or as socratic is the authority that is exercised in the home experienced as what authority means is someone has some power over me, only and precisely because this is what I need for my good, and that's what that power is for, or is authority experienced as a raw exercise of power, which is for the good of the one exercising it. All right, I want to linger for just a moment because it's for reasons such as this that this work is such a masterpiece and has such a lasting influence by it, it, it laying out before us so clearly two fundamentally different ways to see justice. And, and it does it by giving this fascinating angle of, is it about power or not? That's why I think Thrasymachus' position is is so So interesting, it has much in common with the uh, modern philosopher by the name of Nietzsche, who says, at root, the fundamental reality at work in human life is the desire for power. And I present for consideration that when one misses the true nature of the good in human life, the most obvious alternative is power. And so you have here a very fundamental dichotomy. Consider what the the kind of obsession in modern life of having power, of having power over other individuals in your life, of having power in society, of having power over what is right and wrong. Consider Thrasymachus is going to consistently be accusing Socrates' position as being a position of weakness. Don't you understand, Thrasymachus is saying to Socrates, and this is going to come out in book two that you might not have read, but I'll just advert to it, that justice is for weak people. Justice explicitly is going to be asserted in book two by those who are continuing Thrasymachus' argument, is justice is going to be always promoted by the people who don't have the strength to be unjust. I, I think the, when one considers this, you can see why they say this. If you haven't had the insights into the real power and beauty of what the human good is, then it does seem silly. It does seem weak. Why why would you not take something that you could get your hands on? Why would you not lie if you possibly could and get away with it? Why would you not exercise power and just be that master who can tell other people what to do? Why would you submit yourself to some God's laws for you rather than doing as you will? But here, Socrates' position is often going to be the one that is harder to bring to light for people because it's it's dependent upon having seen something more rich, more nuanced, more subtle, that requires a certain humility and I dare say childlikeness to have the insight into what its nature is. Ladies and gentlemen, it's still coming here in a moment. And further on here in book one, which we'll turn turn to directly, don't worry, is going to be Socrates coming back and saying, okay, well, actually, here's the counterpoint. Here is how we can start to have some understanding of an objective basis for talking about what a human good is that's different from power. Again, I present for you as a fundamental moral dichotomy. We will always tend to reach for the level of power when we don't have the understanding of what the true human good is. It's very easy to conceptualize. It's very easy to picture an attractiveness of having power. All right. Whereas it's not easy to see the goodness that has to begin by subjecting yourself. And I present for consideration here again in this fundamental dichotomy, Socrates is, is, is aware of this. You might put it this way, the fundamental question is this, is one going to be willing to be under the authority of someone else? If one doesn't see the true goodness that is involved in so doing, and all one can see is the more obvious appeal of power, then authority will always be a threat. It will always be something to be rejected. I present for your consideration, ladies and gentlemen, as a related then but very important side point and instance of this. This dynamic that I'm trying to express here is played out again, I go back to the household for just a moment, is played out in the household every day In human life, here is the first and fundamental place where human beings are presented with an opportunity to have to experience, am I going to subordinate myself to something that is in somehow, some way set above me? Am I going to be able to recognize that at the beginning, as a ground of my good life, is that I might, must be willing to say, I will submit myself. Is this not of the essence of being a child? Is this not ultimately perhaps of the essence and ex- explanatory of why our Lord will say, unless you become like a child, the first disposition of a child should be, I am willing to subordinate myself to an authority that is over me. And what is it that most of all moves one to subordinate oneself to an authority that is over you? When you experience that authority that is over you as taking care of you for your good. Note the incredible burden, challenge, and glory of anyone in authority, the original archetype of which is in the household of parents over their children of having to convey that real power only would be exercised here as a matter of exercising an authority that is a knowing vision and direction for the good of the one who is subordinate to it. That is the background for then the one who's subordinate to it to discover his true good. So Symachus is on another planet. All right. So I am going to go to the end of book one, where we have one of the absolute most important instances in the history of philosophy of an argument being made for an objective, basic standard in human nature for right and wrong. The whole Thrasymachus question also raises simply this question. Is there some argument from the light of natural reason that there's an objective difference between the just and the unjust that is not a matter simply of power, but it is a matter of what is truly good or not for human persons? Is there some way of seeing that by the light of natural reason? Here's the interesting thing, ladies and gentlemen, more and more in our society, it tends to be only those of a religious faith. Not only that. But it is moving more in the direction of only those of a religious faith who hold that there is this objective standard of right and wrong. More and more, this kind of relativism, this subjectivism of there is no way of knowing what is objectively just or not, is taking hold. And here, Plato, this is what's come up right here. Socrates has to come forward at this point, and if he is going to make good on being able to come up with some nature of justice, a nature of justice that is going to make it be worthwhile to live the just life. He's going to have to have some account for how we can see, obviously by the light of natural reason, as he has no divine revelation, how you could distinguish between what really is good or not. Again, apart from the crass and obvious lover of, well, it seems nice to have power over things. So, he is going to introduce a couple of important terms. I'm on my page 29, and we have these last couple pages of book one, which we'll wrap up and then go on to book four. This is an answer to the question of whether the unjust is going to be happier or not, or the just man is going to be happier or not. And he moves into this right at 352D. My book's page 29, 352D, Daniel. We must now examine... As we proposed before, whether just people also live better and are happier than unjust ones. So, again, two main issues what is justice? And is the just man happier? Now, he recognizes that he hasn't really fully answered the question of what is justice yet. He's, these questions are very closely combined, connected to one another, because you can't really answer whether the uh, just life or unjust life is happier unless you have some notion of justice. So really, he says, I'm going to turn to address whether the unjust or the just life is happier, but it's also just going further, taking a further step in unfolding what he means by justice. He introduced two key terms here, ladies and gentlemen, and these two key terms are function and excellence. And I'm going to show them to you here in, in the book. And just so you know, I just, in teaching our Aristotelian, moral philosophy or ethics class, we just finished going through the Nicomachean ethics, the fundamental argument in the Nicomachean ethics about what constitutes human happiness is this argument, which Aristotle lifts from Socrates. This is absolutely foundational. So I think it's clear that that this is so, but we must look into it further. Since the argument concerns no ordinary topic but the way we ought to live. Again, I'm at 352, Daniel, about to move into Edward. I will tell you, I promise, I will. Tell me, do you think there's a such thing as the function of a horse? I do. And would you define the function of a horse or anything else as that which one can do only with it or best with it? I don't understand. Let me put it this way. Is it possible to see with anything other than eyes? Certainly not. Or to hear with anything other than ears? No. Then we are right to say that seeing and hearing are the functions of eyes and ears? Of course. What about this? Could you use a dagger or a carving knife or lots of other things in pruning a vine? Of course, but wouldn't you do a finer job with a pruning knife designed for the purpose than with anything else? You would. Then we shall take pruning to be its function. Yes. Now I think you'll understand what I was asking earlier when I asked whether the function of of each thing is what it alone can do or what it does better than anything else. I understand. I think that this is the function of each. All right, pause. So the notion of function, a something that is most unique to this, something that is most characteristic of this kind of thing. That's what is captured here by saying what it alone can do or what it does better than anything else. Another way of saying it is, is that which is most unique to what is most characteristic of this. Whatever the this is, he refers to a horse. He refers to a pruning knife. He gives an example of something that exists by nature. He gives an example of an artifact. Either way, you can ask of it, what is its function? What is that way of acting that is the most characteristic, that is the most defining of this kind of thing? Now, the next word that he's going to introduce is the word arete, in Greek, A-R-E-T-E. One of the other of five or so Greek words that I know, arete, which is what is translated as virtue or excellence. Either one is a translation of the same term, virtue or excellence. Key moment here. All right. Does each thing to which a particular function is assigned also have a virtue? Let's go over the same ground again. We say that eyes have some function. They do. So there's also a virtue of eyes. There is. And ears have a function. Yes. So there is also a virtue of ears. There is. And all of the things are the same, aren't they? They are. And could eyes perform their function well if they lacked their peculiar virtue and had the vice instead? How could they? For don't you mean if they had blindness instead of sight? Whatever their virtue is. For I'm not now asking about. That, but about whether anything that has a function performs it well by means of its own peculiar virtue and badly by means of advice. That's true. It does. So ears too, deprived of their own virtue, perform their function badly. That's right. And the same can be said of everything else. So it seems. Boom. Done the introduction to the argument, the key groundwork. You have need to understand that what is being asserted there here is this, as regards anything, any kind of thing, not anything as an individual, any kind of thing will have a function. that way of acting that is most characteristic, most defining of it. Then corresponding to the function is an arete is a virtue is an excellence. What the way I define virtue or excellence here in the original meaning of the Greek is the ability to perform the function well. The excellence is the ability to perform the function well. What you need to see here, is what we mean by the ability to perform the function well is something that not everything has. What you have to understand is everything of a kind will always have the same function. The example that Aristotle gives is a flute player. Every flute player has the same function, but only some flute players have the arete that corresponds to that function. So the arete is something that normally needs to be developed, that may or may not be there. By what it is, it has this function. And then perhaps it has the excellence or the virtue of being able to perform that function well. All right. Every horse, you'd say, has the same function. But then some horses will actually have the excellence, which is the ability to do what horses do well. Every flute player has the same function, only some of them have the excellence. So he says, and so it is with everything, which is the lead-in now for turning to human nature. Yeah, I'm gonna ask you if you happen to have a question, you can hold it for a moment. We're gonna look at what human what he says about human beings, and then I'll take any questions. It's really rather straightforward, but it's extremely powerful. Come then. I'm here at 353D, Daniel. Come then and let's consider this. Is there some function of a soul? that you couldn't perform with anything else. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most important moments in the history of philosophical thinking about human beings. And the point that's going to be made, you're going to think, oh my goodness, this is so simple. How can this be such a big deal? Well, I'm going to ask you to consider it is. What's about to be asserted here is something that is fundamentally rejected by countless approaches to life and countless understandings of human nature, or, according to Socrates, it would be misunderstandings. What is it that by the nature of the human person could be said to be the function of a soul? What is it that all human beings, by what they are, can be said to be the activity the most is defining and characteristic of what they are? This is going to be the basis, ladies and gentlemen, if there is an answer to that question for an objective truth about what it means to be human, an objective truth about right and wrong, and about justice and injustice. And here, very unobtrusively, his answer is given in the form of a question: Is there some function of a soul that you couldn't perform with anything else? For example, taking care of things, ruling deliberating and the like there it is that doesn't seem like it. it seems like a pretty pretty homely little list there what why is he put it that way there it is ladies and gentlemen taking care of things ruling deliberating and the like is there anything else than a soul to which you could rightly assign these sayings and say that they are its peculiar function? No, comes the answer, none of them. What of living? Isn't that a function of a soul? It certainly is. And then we also say that there is a virtue of a soul. We do. Then listen. Will a soul ever perform its function well for Symmachus if it is deprived of its own peculiar virtue? Or is that impossible? It's impossible. Doesn't it follow then? that a bad soul rules and takes care of things badly and that a good soul does all these things well. It does. Now we agreed that justice is a soul's virtue. All right, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Let's knock this out. Here's the assertion that's being made. Once again, real quick, everything, including human beings, if you look at what it is, if you look at its nature, there will be some way of acting that is most characteristic of it. Then, likewise, corresponding to that, there will be an excellence of it, an ability to do it, to be it well. Everybody knows that there are good horses and there are bad horses. There are good apple trees and there are bad apple trees. There are good pruning knives and there are bad pruning knives. All pruning knives have the same function, but some of them are able to do it well. And that makes the difference between a good pruning knife and a bad pruning knife, a good apple tree and a bad apple tree and a good horse and a bad horse. So he's suggesting in a similar way, you can say there's a such thing as a good human being and a bad human being. And what he means by bad there, of course, is one that is failing to be what it could and should be. It's still a human being. A bad apple tree is still an apple tree. It's not saying that it's necessarily bad to the core. No pun intended. But it is nonetheless going to be called a bad apple tree, or bad horse, right? If you're a horseman, here's a bad horse. It doesn't do what horses do well. No one's going to want to ride it. No one's going to want to use it for anything. It's a menace. It doesn't have the excellence. So human beings, this is is a very humble and simple point, but what is it that most of all is characterized as human beings? You You know how Aristotle puts it? He just says rational activity. Rational activity. A very rich notion well that has to be unpacked but here how does his teacher plato put it taking care of things ruling deliberating and the like therein most of all is humanity expressed and there is a way of doing that well and there are ways of not doing that well ladies and gentlemen this is an extremely important point at the foundation of all good Greek moral philosophy. The word virtue originally means nothing other than the power to do well what a thing does. That's all it means. The power to do well, whatever it is that that thing does. That's what I That's what virtue originally means. So in the broad sense, you can use that Greek term of there's a virtue of a tree. There's a virtue of a pruning knife. There's a virtue of a flute player. As things have progressed, ladies and gentlemen, in the consideration of these things, the word virtue, we don't use the word virtue for those other areas because everybody recognizes that we should preserve the word. And everybody, the wise came to see that we need to just use this word for this particular excellence not the excellence of all those other things so we're only going to use the word virtue anymore to name the ability to do well what human beings do i can't emphasize to you enough how this is the foundation of an objective view of morality in the greeks that originally all the virtue is is living rationally with excellence and this is the angle through which how all of these men then will consider the various virtues, will name the various ways of living as a human being lives well. That's the end of my presentation of book one. He, he kept the biggest bomb there, the drop on you right at the end. And I don't want beat to beat a dead horse. So how are we doing? Questions, please. Go for it, Carmen. And then Sister Michelle will bring you up too.
0: So what Socrates is saying is that if you want to be happy, your soul must perform its function well by perfection and virtue or excellence.
2: Check. Roger that. That is what human flourishing will be as the flourishing of a horse is is one of a horse has the excellence that corresponds to the function of a horse. An excellent knife is the knife that has the excellence that corresponds to the function of the knife. The ex- excellent and thus flourishing and thus happy human being, for them, happy means flourishing. For them, happy is not a feeling. It's a state of being at perfection and flourishing and goodness of life is in precisely then what the various virtues are and here he's just he's going to originally just kind of use justice as the overarching one any other questions
1: yes uh sister javar is writing in and is asking is is there a difference between authority and authoritative i guess having authority and being authoritative and essentially i mean is that Paralleling this um, difference between, you know, power being the number one thing versus serving, or or organizing things for the good of others.
2: Very reasonable question. And here's the thing that, that, that that is often tricky in these matters. That's a little bit of a usage question. And so I'd say, in English usage, I see exactly what Sister is saying. I wonder whether the question would more mean authoritarian. As a part, as opposed to authoritative. If you say this person is authoritarian in general, I, I'd say in, in the case in common usage, authoritarian is someone who is exercising authority in a bad way, someone who is overdoing it authoritative, I actually think is an adjective just for, well, the authoritative treatment of such and such is, so I don't think in general authoritative is used with with a negative connotation. I think, I think the, the negative connotation term there would be authoritarian, which then I think is, would be going back to the distinction that I had made. I'm not sure if I'm being fair there. Two other
1: questions. And I think
2: you are, I think you are being fair. There's two other um
1: just dynamite questions coming in here. One is from Ray, and he's asking, um, in defining function, you use the word acting. Acting means action or doing. How does this, that is action or doing, relate to being?
2: Um Good question. As a very metaphysical question, I would just say I'll give an old scholastic maxim: "Action follows upon being." Adere, sequitur esse." Two infinitives there: adere to act, "sequitur" means follows, "esse" the, the infinitive for to be. So the actions of things follow upon their being, and so it, as it were, is revealing of the very being of an apple tree that it acts in various ways. The function names the action that is most of all revelatory of what the thing is in a sense of, I'd say, its being. There's my answer to that question.
1: All right, Martha asks, did you say that most Greeks thought like
2: Socrates or was he introducing something new? Great question. I, I don't think it's fair to say that most Greeks thought like Socrates, was he introducing something new? There's certainly some things that were new, but at the same time, if you ask Socrates himself, he wouldn't see himself as, as, as new. He'd see himself as very much in a tradition. And so that, that, that's a nuanced question. That's a little bit of a yes and a no. It's is what was Socrates saying some new things in any case, making some things much more clear than ever been made before? Absolutely. Were there certain things that perhaps had even never been said? Sure. At the same time, it's Socrates parachuting out of the sky out of nowhere as though, whoa, where in the world did this come from? Absolutely not. That's just not the way that it works. He had teachers, but sometimes. It, particularly in rare and unique situations a great teacher can even outdo his master and it's normally held that Socrates perhaps by the grace of God some early church fathers such as Saint Justin Martyr held it it seems that there is, were special graces that were given to these men to that kind of made them stand out Did most Greeks hold it no but was it but was it completely, unheard of uh, otherwise? No, not that either. Next question.
1: Marie asks, would the way you are using happy be of the same root as happy or blessed are those, uh, i.e. the way it's used in the Beatitudes?
2: Exactly. Affirmative.
1: Next question. Uh, Joshua asks, do you think this definition of virtue and justice is a precursor of the word sin since my understanding is that sin is an archery term that means quote to miss the mark end quote or fails to achieve the intended purpose
2: i do not know about the etymology there so that's simply beyond my ken but i i like the way of thinking there i mean sin uh, another way of saying it is i mean archery terminology is great kind of hitting the mark being on the mark versus off the mark Uh, another way kind of Order versus, versus disorder. Um, so I'm I'm particularly going to going to go, and this particularly comes out more in Aristotelianism. It's going on here in Socrates. It's of reason to order, to deliberate, to rule and so to do that well is to do so in an ordered way so in each of these in each of the, the excellence is in each of these virtues is a way of being ordered of thinking and acting rationally well in various ways so unfortunately can't help on the etymology though i certainly you know kind of hitting the mark versus not hitting the mark ordered versus disordered i'm all for it any other questions yeah last one's coming from jane she asks
1: Does the definition of virtue tie in with the Christian understanding of true freedom?
2: Wow. Now this is really turning into the free for all of deep questions. (laughs) Um, That's a, that's a good deep question. I'm, I'm, and I'm going to say the answer is absolutely. Yes. You're going to have to just give me a little bit of freedom, (laughs) no pun intended in, in answering this question without giving a full explanation. But And as much as true freedom can can be connected to the notion of becoming what you were most of all designed to be, that's exactly what virtue is saying here. The virtuous person is the one who has become, who has developed the ability, who has developed the habits to live human nature, especially in its most proper function well in any right notion ultimately of true freedom as exposed, for instance, by Pope John St. John Paul II in Veritatis Splendor, as he does make that connection, the answer to the question is yes. Probably can't go more into that at the moment. So quick couple points about that come up in, in, in book two really fast, and a couple things in book three that I just have to tell you, and then we'll go on to book four. So, book two Glaucon, Adeimantus, two brothers, his students. They end up saying in book two Look, Socrates, you've made some really nice points, but at the end of the day, I don't think you've really answered Thrasymachus. So, we're going to take the, 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 the position of Thrasymachus and go even further with it. I was mentioning that to you a, lo- a little bit earlier. So, they go on and they start to say some pretty powerful, radical, negative things. Things like, Hey, Don't you realize that many people hold that this whole notion of justice was ultimately formed by those people that thought that they couldn't get away with doing whatever they want. They weren't powerful enough to get away with it. So they agreed, hey, let's just call these things just as a way of kind of protecting ourselves and then we'll be better off. They also said, hey, isn't it the case, and I just have to note this to you, it's the famous Ring of Gyges story, G-Y-G-E-S, in book two. You can take a peek at it. It's a very powerful story that uh, brought up by Glaucon and Adamantus to threaten Socrates' position and just say this. You say that that living just life is actually better. Then why is it the case that in the famous ancient story of the ring of Gyges, which was a magic ring, which when you found it and you put it on, it would make you be invisible? Why is it that in the story, anyone who gets the ring of Gyges and actually puts it on and now can do whatever he wants to do because he is invisible? Why is it that we all know? that anyone who gets the ring of Gyges is going to start to run around and do some pretty nasty things. But you, Socrates, are saying that the good life, the just life, is clearly the better life. But this flies in the face of the root desires of human beings, which obviously come out if you simply give them the ring of Gyges. So you're really going to tell me that the just life is the happier life when people who are given the choice to do whatever they want not under the vision of others, don't choose it. Socrates himself says, wow, you've really set quite a task for me. That's going to be difficult for me to answer. But he says, I will set forth to do it. And the way that he's going to do it, he says, this is how we're going to go about it. And this is why the book Republic got the name that it does. He said, we need to look all the more carefully into what justice is. So to make, find out what justice in the individual is, we're going to look at justice writ big. Justice writ big big will be in a city. And so he says kind of cutely, but it's obviously also just wanted to start to do some political philosophy. He said, let's look at it writ big because it will be easier to see there writ big than it would be when it's writ small. So let's start a whole Politeia. Let's start a whole polis. A city, a civil society, and let's talk about how it should be ordered. And then in there, we're going to look carefully and we're going to ask ourselves, what would be the just city? And then if we see what justice is in the city, then we'll be able to see what it is in the individual. So that sets the trajectory of why the republic is the republic. So right at this point, you were thinking, why is it why is the republic? Why why is the city involved here at all? That comes in precisely in order to answer the question of what justice is. So he starts to set up the city and he makes there be three basic different kinds of people here. There are the guardians who will be the rulers, there are the auxiliaries who will be the soldiers. And then there are basically all the rest, which you can call the moneymakers for lack of a better word, which also includes the various craftsmen. So again, we have what he calls the guardians, which the rulers, we have the auxiliaries, which are also basically the soldiers. And then you have the realm of the moneymakers slash the craftsmen at the lowest level. All right. Then we move into book three. Book three, ladies and gentlemen, he starts to talk famously about education. We're going to talk more about education next week. And so we'll come back and make another another couple points from book three. He's going to return to it because that's what he wants to talk about in the image of the cave in the beginning of book seven. You'll note, I'm going to ask you this question next week. What is it that the cave is most of all meant to illustrate? I'm giving you the answer already this week, and you'll see it at the beginning of reading book seven. He says, I'm going to give you the analogy of the cave so that you can see what the fruit of good education versus bad education will be. Socrates is a man that is profoundly interested in how to form human beings. I cannot emphasize to you enough how much I think that you can learn from the Republic about the education of human beings. For interestingly, Given that he has made the main topic be justice, he is absolutely convinced that the only way that there come to be just human beings is if from when they were young, they were intentionally formed to be such. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, obsessed, if I may use that word in a positive sense, with what can we do to most of all assure? And they have already, all, they certainly realize there's nothing that absolutely assures it. What can you do to most of all assure that people will become virtuous? And as the more that you see about what they hold virtue, especially justice to be, the more it will be clear why they hold that this doesn't happen by accident. It happens through some type of intentionality and particularly by and large by some authority that is being exercised well that was looking out and here i use it in the positive way authoritatively not not author, in an authoritarian way not as a mere exercise of power but looking out authoritatively with true authority for the good of those under it and so it's in book 3 that he talks about the arts, and he talks about music. I'm going to hold off. I've given a whole separate ICC lecture that very much calls upon book three, which now you know the context for it. Now you know having set up the good city, you know what he says? He says, if we're ever going to find what virtue is in this city, I have to first talk about education because you couldn't possibly have a good city unless you have good education. By education, it becomes very clear. It does not mean simply academic formation. He means most of all, Fundamentally, the formation of a, quote, well-turned-out human being, one fundamentally who is virtuous. So that was the context for his talking about music and the other aspects of formation and the use of good stories and the other good arts. We come now into book four. At the beginning of book four, he still just can't let it go he is so interested and concerned about the different ways that you form good human beings that i have to, i have to read this section to you and then no let's do this you have to come back next week to hear, to hear this this i i i was going to give you an, an absolute jaw dropper from the first several pages of book four about the things that he thinks are important, such as the clo- even including the clothes that people wear and the games that they play. All of these beautiful things going into how you form people. But since we're going to emphasize education more next week, let's cut to the chase here and look at how in book four he finally says, All right, now we have done our basic work, talking about what education is. We now basically know what a good city is going to look like. And so now let's start to say more specifically what the virtues are. I'm on my page 102, going over to 103. I'm at 427D, 427 David. Well, son of Ariston, your city might now be said to be established. The next step is to get an adequate light somewhere and a call upon your brother as well as Polemarchus and the others so as to look inside it and see where the justice and injustice might be in it. What the difference between them is and which of the two the person who is to be happy should possess, whether its possession is unnoticed by all the gods and human beings or not. All right, gentlemen, that's a great overview of what he's trying to do in this book and where he's going. He's just said, all right, Now we have set up what the good city is. Now what we're going to do is look inside it so as to go back to our original question. Who is the just man? And is it worthwhile being just? And note the way that the question had further been framed in book two, in light of the Ring of Gaiji story, Socrates said, I'm going to take it upon myself to try to argue that it would be better to be just, even if no one knows that you are just. That's why he said right here in which of the two who is to be happy should possess whether its possession is unnoticed by all the gods and human beings or not. Is it better simply to be just once we've seen what it is, we can ask that question. So now you're talking nonsense. Glaucon said you promised to look for them yourself because you said it was impious for you not to come to the rescue of justice in every way you could. Was Glaucon saying, Wait a second, Socrates, you said you were going to answer the question. Don't make me do it. That's true, and I must do what I promised, but you'll have to help. We will. Socrates saying, Bottom of my page 102, 427 e Edward. I hope to find it in this way. I think our city, if indeed it has been correctly founded, is completely good. Necessarily so. Clearly, then, it is wise, courageous, moderate, and just. Ladies and gentlemen, This is the primary, most important place in the history of Western civilization where you have the four cardinal virtues listed. That's it right there. The fascinating thing is it's listed as though this is already known to be the basic list. There's not any basis for it given as to why it would be precisely these four and not other ones. Here we have it being presented almost as though the the wise have discerned that among the virtues, this is how how to divide them. So still bearing in mind that his understanding of virtue will mean, at root, some excellence in being human, which means some excellence in rational activity, then we have four different ways that that's going to show up. So he says, now we're going to look at the city and we're going to go through what these four different ones are. All right. He looks at it in the city and he looks at it in the individual. I'm going to just note what it is in the individuals. And he works up to what justice is. But to do that, then I'll just very quickly note what he says. The other ones are, what is wisdom? It's knowledge. Wisdom's going to be a knowledge. The other ones are not going to be knowledge. Wisdom is the same now. Of the four cardinal virtues, one of them is a fundamentally intellectual disposition. In our terminology now, we call it prudence. Here he's calling it wisdom. It is going to be a knowledge fundamentally of the human good and how to achieve it. A knowledge of the human good and how to achieve it. Wisdom in the city has got to be in the rulers of the city so that they can guide the city to its true good wisdom in the individual, which is what our interest in, then will be a knowledge in the individual of what his good as a whole is, and how he, with all the various parts within him, will achieve that. There we have wisdom. Then we come to courage. Ladies and gentlemen, this is, his definition of courage is a little bit different than Aristotle does it, but it's so beautiful, and it's still the root of what Aristotle does, and it's completely worth noting. At 430A to 430B, he says what it is in the city, and that fundamentally is also what it is in the soul, 430 beta. This power to preserve through everything the correct and law-inculcated belief about what is to be feared and what isn't is what I call courage, unless, of course, you say otherwise. I May mean, just go back to the, the, the beginning of this paragraph is so powerful, so beautiful. Then you should understand that as far as we could, we were doing something similar when we selected our soldiers and educated them in music and physical training. What we were contriving was nothing other than this, that because they had the proper nature and upbringing, they would absorb the laws in the finest way possible, just like a dye, so that their belief about what they should fear and all the rest would become so fast that even such extremely effective detergents as pleasure, pain, fear, and desire wouldn't wash it out. Pleasure is a much more potent than any powder, washing, soda, or soap. So this power to preserve through everything the correct and law-inculcated belief about what is to be feared and what isn't is what I call courage. Later on, Aristotle is going to focus on and having rightly ordered fear. Here he's, he's focusing on courage is this power to retain your understanding of what really should be feared and what shouldn't in whatever dangers, and whatever suffering, against whatever pleasures. It's the power to always retain that. Moving along quickly then, he says what moderation is. How does he say what moderation is? In a word, he says moderation, or what we call temperance, is simply the subordination of our bodily appetites to the guidance of reason. It's that simple. It's that difficult. It's that profound. Here is an excellence. This is an excellence of living rationally. Well, it's an excellence of the human function in this particular area. The human lower appetites, that they be always guided by reason and never act simply on their own impetus, but always according to what reason judges be better. There's what we call moderation. Now, Justice, his characterization of justice, find when he finally comes to it here, is rather strange, I have to admit. But quickly, let's just lay it out there. He says, in the city, justice is when each part of the city does precisely what it should. He says, then, justice in the soul is when each part of the soul is doing what that part of the soul should be doing, the desiring part, and the spirited, or what Aristotle is going to call the irascible part, are each playing precisely the role they should, the will, the reason. Each of them is doing what it should. Now, here's the strange thing. It, It can sound a little bit like that's just, well, isn't that just saying that you have the other virtues, therefore you have justice? It does sound that way. In some sense, it is that way. I'm not gonna be able to completely dispel that as I'm, just, as I'm just running out of time. But I do, in any case, and we will pick up here and just spend a couple quick minutes on this at the beginning of next time. But the beautiful conclusion comes on 117, the most direct line about what justice in the individual is, is this. We'll pick up here by saying a couple more things about this as an initial culmination of his view of justice. And then we'll be able to see that unfold a little bit more later in the later books. And I'm at 441, Daniel going into Edward, 441, D going to E, my book, page 117. Then we must also remember that each one of us in whom each part is doing its own work will himself be just and do his own. Therefore, isn't it appropriate for the rational part to rule since it's really wise and exercises foresight on behalf of the whole soul and for the spirited part to obey and be its ally. It certainly is. And isn't it, as we were saying, a mixture of music, and poetry on the one hand and physical training on the other that makes the two parts harmonious, stretching and nurturing the rational part with fine words and learning and relaxing the the part through soothing stories and making gent- gentle by means of harmony and rhythm. All right. Quickly down to the bottom of page 119. I'm going to let you go in 30 seconds. 443, Daniel going into Edward. 443, Daniel going into Edward. we start right in the middle of that paragraph. Right at the D. One who is just, does not allow any part of himself to do the work of another part or allow the various classes classes within him to meddle with each other. He regulates well what is really his own and rules. Himself, he puts himself in order, is his own friends, and harmonizes the three parts of himself like three limiting notes in a musical scale, high, low, and middle. He binds together those parts and any others there may be in between. From having been many things, he becomes entirely one, moderate, harmonious. Only then does he act. I leave you, ladies and gentlemen, with that great line: "Only then does he act." In Socrates understanding of justice it first of all is an interior order of the soul where each part of the soul is doing precisely what it should when each part of the soul is doing precisely as it should you have an interior harmony which bears fruit and then acting and this man will always do his part in whatever community to which he belongs. This, in a word, is what he says of justice. I know that came to a rather screeching halt. We'll say a couple more things about that and go on from there. Andy, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Professor.
1: You know, we started uh, before I got going here. We were looking at this question from Andrea. How does learning about philosophical topics help us to build our relationship with God and man? And uh, certainly we've got an answer tonight. I was looking at um, paragraph 39 in the catechism. How can we speak about God? In defending the ability of human reason to know God, the church is expressing her confidence in the possibility of speaking about him to all men and with all men, and therefore of dialogue with other religions, with philosophy and science, as well as with unbelievers and atheists what we've been shown tonight is a fruit of um, natural reason that you are able to make contact with somebody um, on the most kind of like fundamental raw layer or level, right? Sometimes I think we can get a little bit lazy in evangelizing and we want to just go for the gold right away. And we're not realizing um, that maybe some of these words that we're using, and we might be using the same words as someone we're exchanging in conversation with, and they could be meaning something totally different to that person we're talking with than they are to us. And instead of just kind of going for the gold right away, we need to do the hard work and the slow work of making sure that we're in agreement on much more basic levels. I couldn't help but think of, uh, you know, in the book of James, where, uh, you know, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and in lack of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? I don't think I'm often applying this principle to evangelizing, you know, where you need to there's going to be times of course where the holy spirit is telling you go like you can skip a couple steps right but i think for most cases you need to build upon the natural before you go to the supernatural and this is going to involve more time than we may want we saw kind of how how much back and forth was happening between these characters right and the number of questions that were being asked And I think it's something that we can take to heart for us in the conversations that we have with people around us day-to-day. Maybe something we can take home tonight is simply to just ask more questions. And that can be a very useful, uh, not just useful as in we're going to win by using this technique, but something that's helpful in building contact with the person you're dialoguing with is to ask them more questions than you assert things to them, not not because of a lack of confidence in the truth, but because you're doing that hard work of making sure that you're understanding um, each other sort of on a natural level before you start going to a supernatural. So thank you for showing not only insights into the nature of justice and the nature of virtue, but in that path along there, showing us that importance of conversation, of asking questions, and thinking more deeply about things that we may take for granted and assume are simpler than they actually are. Thank you, Professor.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635